Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Welcome to ACRAC. Uh, I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm very excited today to have with me, via the uh, Skype connection, Dr. Michael Hofkamp, who is the Director of Obstetrical Anesthesia at Baylor Scott and White Memorial Hospital and a Clinical Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at Texas A&M Health Science Center, College of Medicine, and very excitingly has the distinction of being the first remote guest on ACRAC. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the show. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. So we are, Mike and I today are going to talk about uh, his area of expertise, obstetric anesthesia. And we may actually do kind of a series of these since Mike has a, a wide-ranging interest in a variety of topics in this area. But today we're going to start with a basic introduction and talk about the changes in maternal physiology when a woman becomes pregnant. This is very high yield for boards. Lots of questions come from this material. And we're going to go through it with Mike. All right. So, Mike, why don't we start with the cardiac system that's often tested and kind of one of the major things. So when a woman becomes pregnant, uh, what happens in terms of her cardiovascular system? Well, when when I have my residents and learners thinking about maternal physiology and pregnancy, it's very confusing what goes up, what goes down. What I think is a great framework to have from the outset is to remember that the fetus is essentially a parasite. So everything the mother is doing physiologically is trying to compensate to support this parasite. So when you have a cardiac system, when you look at the cardiac system, the goal of the cardiac system in maternal physiology is to deliver more oxygen to the fetus. And so First of all, for body weight, you're going to get an increase in body weight. It's about 12 kilograms, and that's, that's, uh, that's pretty intuitive for supporting a, 
the fetus. So now that's not all fetus, obviously. So where where no, is it's that not all. coming from? Uh, it's going to it's it's uh, it's mostly it's going to be alive. It, it's going to be increased in the circulatory volume. You're going to get a fifty percent increase in cardiac output, and that is going to be mostly it's going to be mostly plasma, and the red the packed red blood cells are trying to catch up, but you're going to get this physiologic anemia of pregnancy mm-hmm. because you get this increase in plasma volume that outpaces the the the, uh, the packed red blood cells. And so the cardiac output is going to increase by 50%. And of the 50%, what can explain that is the stroke volume increases by 25%, and the heart rate increases by 25% as well. And together, that kind of synergistically gives a cardiac output of 50%. And you're also going to get some interesting hemodynamic changes in addition to that. The left ventricular end diastolic volume is going to be increased, but the left ventricular end systolic volume, that's going to be the volume left in the heart after uh, you have a contraction. There's going to be no change in that. And so if you have an increase in end diastolic volume and no change in end systolic volume, you're going to have an increased ejection fraction. And you, but you're going to have no change in the left ventricular stroke work index. You're going to have no change in the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. You're going to have no change in the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure. And interestingly enough, you're not going to have an increase in the central venous pressure. And what's going to happen as pregnancy goes further and further along is that the share of the cardiac output to the uterus, which is a low-resistance circuit, is going to increase throughout pregnancy, and you're going to get a drop in systemic vascular resistance, and it's quite normal for the blood pressure to drop in the second trimester of pregnancy. Okay. So in, it's sort of like you have a, uh, another route of low resistance for the blood to flow, and therefore you have uh, less overall systemic vascular resistance and your blood pressure is going to be a little lower. That's, that's, that's perfectly correct, yes. Great, okay. Is it, I've seen questions uh, about, so for example, uh, is it normal to have an uh, S3 heart sound in pregnancy? So you're going to get an exaggerated splitting of the mitral and tricuspid components. The second heart sound changes little, and you're, you're going to get a grade two systolic murmur commonly heard at the left sternal border. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I've seen questions saying that uh, an S3 heart sound can be normal because of the, the, uh, the larger volume, but that an S4 would not be normal uh, even in pregnancy. That'd be correct, yes. Great. Okay. Anything else with the cardiovascular system? Um, you're going to get an increase in heart rate. You're going to, on the EKG, you're going to see a shortening of the PR interval. And it's going to be, uh, you're also going to see a shortening of the uncorrected QT interval. And the QRS is going to shift to the right during the beginning of pregnancy, and then it's going to shift towards the left at the end through the displacement of the diaphragm. Uh, if you look at the echo changes, you're going to get left ventricular hypertrophy by 12 weeks gestation. 
you're going to get a 50% increase in cardiac mass at term. And the hypertrophy is going to be due to an increase in the size of the myocytes rather than an increase in the number of the myocytes. And at term, 94% of patients are going to have tricuspid and pulmonic regurgitation, and 27% are going to have mitral regurgitation. Okay, great. So those are all really key uh, facts to know. Anything else from the cardiac standpoint? Um, just uh, during labor, sometimes you get asked questions about what happens to cardiac output during labor. Yeah. And in the first stage of labor, you're going to get a 10% increase in cardiac output. And late in the first stage, you're going to get a 25% increase in cardiac output. In the second stage, you're going to get a 40% in cardiac output. And immediately after delivery, it's gonna your cardiac output's gonna go up by 75%. And they think that this is due to increased stroke volume due to sympathetic activation. And postpartum, you're going to have the fetus delivered, and that's gonna offload the pressure on the, on the vena cava, and that's gonna increase the venous return. And so if women are gonna have heart problems, they're gonna have it paradoxic or counterintuitively after delivery and not during delivery. Right. So the, the largest strain on the heart, both from increased venous return, leading potentially to sort of volume overload status, uh, or from strain on the heart in terms of having to pump all of that extra volume out is all going to happen the sort of peak right after delivery, not pre-delivery. That's correct. Okay. And those percentages, so when you say a 75% increase, that's over baseline, right? Over where they started. That's correct. Okay. Great. All right. So lots of changes in the uh, cardiovascular system, highly tested stuff. How about the pulmonary system? That, I believe, is also uh, has some significant changes. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk first about airway anatomy. Sure. So the th thoracic cage is going to enlarge about 5 to 7 centimeters during pregnancy. And this is due to an increase in the hormone relaxin, which causes the rib cage to undergo some structural changes. You're also going to get some capillary engorgement of the larynx and nasal and oropharyngeal mucosa that begins early in the first trimester and increases progressively throughout pregnancy. And this contributes to the, the feeling of shortness of breath that many pregnant patients experience. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about airflow mechanics, you're going to have increased diaphragmatic excursion. You're going to have decreased chest wall excursion. You're going to have decreased pulmonary resistance. And interestingly enough, your FEV1, that's the force exploratory volume over one second, is not going to change. The FEV1 over the divided by the, the FVC is not going to change. Your flow volume loop is not going to change. And your closing capacity is not going to change. But if you look at the lug volumes, you're going to see some, some pretty significant changes the inspiratory reserve volume is going to increase about 5%. This is all at term. Mm -hmm. Tall volume at term is going to be increased by about 45%. The expiratory reserve volume is going to be decreased by 25%. And this makes intuitive sense because as your tall volume increases, you are the, the volume of lung that's left over is going to decrease because as your tall volume, you're taking bigger and bigger breaths which you have left at the end is going to be lower. The residual volume is also going to decrease by 15%. The inspiratory capacity is going to increase by 15%. The 
the functional residual capacity is going to decrease by 20%, and it's going to actually inc- decrease more when you're supine. It's going to decrease by 30%. And functional residual capacity is a topic that I can't beat to death enough. Mm-hmm. So, well, some some folks um, don't quite understand the basics of functional residual capacity and like what it means. And so how I explain it to, to learners is that gas exchange happens throughout the cardiac cycle. Uh, through, I'm sorry, throughout the, the pulmonary cycle, whether you're taking a big, deep breath in or laying a big, deep breath out. And so functional residual capacity re, uh, reflects the worst gas exchange you have. So that's at the end of a tall volume what is your gas exchange? That's the lowest common denominator of your gas exchange. And so if your functional residual capacity decreases, that means that your lowest, your worst gas exchange is going to decrease as well. And so in pregnant patients, you're going to have the gravid uterus pressing up against the diaphragm, and that's going to decrease the lung volumes. And so when you take a breath and exhale, at the end of exhalation, you're going to have a significantly decreased ability to exchange gas, and that's why that's where the reserve changes come into. Pregnant people have a lot less reserve; they desaturate a lot quicker, and this is really the crux of why they do it. Uh, moving on to lung capacities, vial capacity there is no change. Total lung capacity is decreased by about five percent, so not much. Dead space is increased by 45%. And so you're going to have that that also decrease that also lends to the decreased reserve of these patients. The respiratory rate is no change. And if you look at ventilation at term the minute ventilation is going to increase by 45% and the alveolar ventilation is also going to increase by 45%. And so that's going to lead to obviously a change in your PCO2. Correct. And that's that's a great segue into the, the blood gas component of this podcast. And so the ratio of dead space and tall volume is constant. The alveolar ventilation increases by 30%. But you also get this increase in carbon, bi- carbon dioxide production. So remember, we have this metabolic stress of the fetus. And so you're going to increase your carbon dioxide as well. The progesterone is a respiratory stimulant, and it can cause a steep slope and left shift in the the CO2 response curve. And when you look at the blood gases, when someone is not pregnant, their PaCO2 is approximately 40. Mm -hmm. In the first trimester, it goes to 30, and it it stays there throughout their pregnancy. The PaO2, when when one is not pregnant, it's, it's about 100 millimeters of, of mercury. Right. In the first trimester, because of the increased alveolar ventilation, you're actually going to increase to 107. In the second trimester, because of the gravid uterus causing some challenges to airflow mechanics, it's going to decrease slightly to 105. And it's going to decrease a little bit more to 103 at the, uh, in the third trimester. The pH will be at 7.4 when someone is not pregnant, and it'll go up to 7.44 during the first trimester and the rest of pregnancy. 
And what happens is that the bicarbonate, you're trying to get this metabolic compensation because you're blowing off the CO2, but the metabolic compensation isn't, isn't perfect. And so your blood gas in the first trimester, you're going to have the PaCO2 of 30. You're going to have a pH of 7.44, and the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation will predict a bicarb uh, HCO3 of 21. And that's pretty similar throughout the rest of pregnancy. Like at term, you're going to have a pH of 7.44, a PaCO2 of 30, and an HCO3 of 20. All right. So it sounds like a lot of these changes really happen in the first trimester, and they're due to various hormone hormonal changes because, of course, in the first trimester, there's not much fetus there. But this, Correct. Is, this is all happening very early on. Yeah, and the hormones are the estrogen and progesterone. They both increase the hypoxic ventilatory response. And as I mentioned before, progesterone is a respiratory stimulant, and uh, it makes the uh, makes the infant ventilation increase, even though there isn't a whole lot of fetus there, as you pointed out. Great. All right, so those are some key respiratory physiologic changes. What's next? Okay, let's talk about sleep. Sleep is and always so, a good, always a good topic. <laughs> so uh, pregnancy-associated sleep disorder is a real diagnosis. It's based on hormonal and mechanical factors, and this is mostly due to progesterone, which has a sedating effect. And interestingly enough, sleep quality is worsened in the first and the third trimesters. What I would take from that is that the first trimester is very different uh, second trimesters, one might get used to being pregnant and the hormonal changes, and then by third trimester, you're you're back to uh, not sleeping well again. And uh, another interesting factoid is that pregnancy is associated with transient restless leg syndrome. Okay. So patients can get restless leg syndrome that appears only during pregnancy. So um, let's move on to metabolism and respiration during labor and the perpium. The ventilation will increase by 70 to 140% in the first stage of labor, and it'll increase 120 to 200% in the second stage of labor. Oxygen consumption will increase by 45% in the first stage of labor and 75% in the second stage of labor. Okay. And... What happens is that the oxygen supply will not meet the demand, which leads to the accumulation of lactic acid. So during labor, patients will have uh, elevated lactate levels. Okay. And as a plug for neuraxial analgesia, this will actually attenuate the oxygen demand and decrease the lactic acidosis. It's not surprising that after you deliver this this fetus, that the FRC is going to increase after delivery, which is a good thing for the mother. Right. And um, oxygen consumption, towel volume, and minute ventilation are going to remain elevated until at least six to eight weeks after delivery. And so that's interesting, and that's probably because the hormones are still on board. That'd be, that's correct, yes. Okay. And so, um, Along those lines, let's shift over to the, the hematologic uh, issues of maternal physiology. Yeah, I think this so is like, another frequently tested area. Oh, absolutely. So 
What's going to happen to your blood volume, as I mentioned before, in the cardiac system, is that you're going to have a net increase of 50% by 34 weeks gestation. As I talked about before, you're going to have a physiologic anemia of pregnancy where the plasma volume will increase more than red blood cell volume. And what happens on a hormonal, hormonal level is that the estrogens will increase renin, which is, enhances renal sodium absorption and water retention. And you can retain 900 milligrams extra sodium, which will correspond to seven liters of body water. Wow. And the, uh, the red blood cell volume is, is somewhat responsive to erythropoietin. <clears throat> but like I mentioned before, uh, you're not going to have a proportional increase in blood, blood, red blood cell volume compared to the plasma volume. Okay. And so just to give you some hard numbers, the hemoglobin is going to be about 11.6 grams per deciliter on average, and the hematocrit is going to be 35.5%. And when you look at the plasma volume, it's going to increase about 55% compared to term, and the red blood cell volume is going to increase about 30%. So it's this mismatch that gives you the, the physiologic anemia pregnancy. Right. And so kind of going further along about the hematologic system for plasma proteins, your albumin is going to decrease from 4.5 to 3.9 grams per deciliter during the first trimester, and it's going to go all the way down to about 3.3 grams per deciliter at term. And is that a dilutional effect? That is a dilutional effect, yes, because you're you're going to you're you're going to get some increase in protein and uh, plasma protein production, but it's not going to keep up with the increase in plasma volume. Okay. And so the total plasma protein concentration is going to drop from 7.8 to 7.0 grams per deciliter. And uh, the maternal colloid osmotic pressure will fall by 25% in the first trimester through term. And this is largely a dilutional effect as well. Okay. And it's, it's widely known that pregnant patients are hypercoagulable. And so the, the, the factors that are increased during pregnancy are factor one, which is fibrinogen, factor seven, which is proconvertin, factor eight, which is antihemophilic factor, factor nine, otherwise known as Christmas factor, factor 10, which is Stuart Potter factor, and factor 12, which is Hageman factor. Now there are a couple of factors that are unchanged during pregnancy. That's factor two, prothrombin, and factor five, which is also known as proaccelerin. And interestingly enough, there are two factors that are decreased during pregnancy. It's factor 11, which is thromboplastin antecedent, and factor 13, which is fibrin stabilizing factor. But the net result of all these changes is a hypercoagulable state in pregnancy. Right. And so we look at other hematologic parameters. The PT and the PTT are both shortened 20% during pregnancy. The TEG... If you were to look at a thromboelastogram, you're going to see a hypercoagulable tag. The antithrombin 3 is going to be decreased. The platelet count is going to have either no change or decrease. There's going to be no change in bleeding time. There's going to be an increase in fibrin degradation products and an increase in plasminogen. And another interesting topic is gestational thrombocytopenia. So every now and then, you'll go to your labor and delivery unit, and someone will have a platelet count of less than 100,000, but and it'll be in the absence of preeclampsia. And about 
1% or so of otherwise healthy patients will have a platelet count of less than 100,000. And this is just a, an exaggeration of an otherwise physiologic response. Okay. So if you see low platelets, you're obviously going to at least want to rule out things like eclampsia, preeclampsia, uh, HELP syndrome. But if none of the other factors that would indicate those physiologies are present, then you would feel comfortable saying this is probably one of those people that just has a physiologic thrombocytopenia. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be correct. Okay. So is there any, with those patients, once you've ruled out preeclampsia, help, uh, is there any level of platelets that could be due to the just physiologic dilution or physiologic thrombocytopenia that would prevent you from doing neuraxial anesthesia? So, um, the, the level of platelets required to provide safe neuraxial anesthesia is, is really a lecture in itself, and um, I could devote lots of time to it. But uh, the, the 32nd answer is that uh, it's, it's very difficult to quantify the risk of neuraxial hematomas when you get below 170,000 or so. There is some good data in patients who have cancer who get lumbar punctures who are on chemotherapy. So if you're a cancer patient, you're getting chemotherapy for, for a, um, a blood cell cancer and you've got some kind of fever, there are a lot of case report data that shows that these patients get lumbar punctures with less than 50,000 routinely and don't get the neuraxial hematoma. So that's where a lot of our data comes from. It's very difficult to quantify the exact risk, but I think that my own personal cutoff for neuraxial anesthesia, particularly epidurals, is 70,000. And that's, uh, that's kind of in line with what Stanford and other uh, renowned obstetric anesthesia divisions consider safe for epidural. Now, for a single-shot spinal, I will go down to as low as 50,000. Okay. So 50,000 50, for, um, for a spinal and 70,000 for an epidural, that goes back to what you said before, is that everything else has to be perfect. So if it's just due to, just to, to a dilutional effect, I'll take 70 for an epidural and 50 for a spinal. Great. And I, I've certainly heard those numbers before, and I think the key thing, as you emphasized, is making sure, A, that they're not on their way down and that the next level isn't going to be 30, and B, that you know what's going on. If you're not comfortable with the, why the platelets are 70 or 60 or 50, then uh, you, want to do, you want to make sure you get some more information before making a decision. Yes, that, that'd be correct. Great. All right. So anything <clears throat> else from the kind of coagulation uh, cascade standpoint? Well, one, one thing that I, don't, I do want to touch on that's related to this is the blood loss during delivery. Yeah. So a normal vaginal delivery, you're going to see a blood loss of about 600 uh, milliliters and a normal cesarean delivery that goes up to about a liter. Okay. And when you look at the physiologic changes of pregnancy, the blood volume will drop to 125% of pre-pregnancy during the first postpartum week. So just to review at term, you're going to be 150% of pre-pregnancy after that first postpartum week, it's going to drop from 150 to 125. And some of that is now, due to the blood loss at delivery. Correct. Now, six to nine weeks postpartum, you're going to get a drop to 
110% of pre-pregnancy. So you're really not going to be normal until at least nine weeks postpartum. Okay, interesting. Um, along the lines of the hematologic system, you have the immune system. So you're going to see an increase in the white blood cell count. Again, it's going to go from a normal of 6K, 6,000 before pregnancy to about nine to 11,000 during pregnancy. But during labor, the white blood cell count can reach 15,000. And that's without any signs or any um, real source of infection. Right. And so it's very, it's very concerning sometimes where you think about placing an epidural catheter, you see this white count, you think there's infection, you don't want to see the epidural space with some source. But you have to remember that you're going to have a physiologic increase in white blood cell count, particularly during labor. Yeah, that's really important. I think in general, we want to be cautious uh, in and outside of pregnant patients with putting too much emphasis on just an elevated white count. But this, you make a very good point that there's a very good reason why during labor, a, a woman may have an isolated rise in her white count. Yes. Uh, another interesting uh, tidbit is that the polymorphonuclear leukocyte activity is going to be reduced during pregnancy. And this may, in fact, be the reason behind higher infection rates during pregnancy. Okay, great. Okay, we're going to move on to the GI system. Let's talk about and so, and so mechanically, the stomach is going to be displaced upward and to the left, and this is going to um, create a lower esophageal sphincter pressure and more gastroesophageal reflux. And the gastric emptying of liquids and solids is actually not altered during pregnancy, but it is increased during labor. So pregnant people will clear liquids and solids about the same as non-pregnant people, except for when they're in labor. Okay. The on a hormonal level, the progesterone will slow the esophageal peristalsis and intestinal transit during pregnancy. That's why a lot of pregnant patients are both constipated and have really bad heartburn, a really miserable combination, if you ask me. Yeah, it's, I <laughs> <laughs> box after box of Tums when my wife was um, 80% of both pregnant and non-pregnant women have a pH of less than 2.5. And 50% of gastric volumes of 25 or more. And 40 to 50% have both low pH and gastric volumes greater than 25 milliliters. And so these patients uh, are at risk for aspiration and that's why we do the aspiration prophylaxis when we're going to take them back to the operating room for surgical procedures. Great. And so when you look at labor analgesia and gastric function, the epidural analgesia using local anesthetic does not delay gastric emptying. And, but the epidural fentanyl will delay gastric emptying, and that's probably due to systemic absorption of that opioid. Okay. And so, uh, moving on to the liver and the gallbladder, the liver size, morphology, blood flow is unchanged during pregnancies. The uh, LFTs will rise to the upper level of normal during pregnancy due to um, the production in the placenta, because the placenta is going to produce LFTs. Okay. You're going to have an increased risk of gallbladder disease during pregnancy due to biliary stasis and increased secretion of bile with cholesterol. And so if patients are going to have a laparoscopic cholecystectomy during pregnancy, it's going to be best for the mother and fetus to do that during the second trimester 
and we do, you will see a fair amount of women come to the operating room in the second trimester of pregnancy to get their laparoscopic cholecystectomies. And is that because the first trimester, uh, things just aren't quite settled as much with the fetus and you, and uh, there's more risk of miscarriage at that time? That's correct. Um, particularly the first part of the first trimester with organic genesis. But once organic genesis have taken, has taken place, the teratogenic effects of the anesthetics are, are uh, attenuated when you get to that second trimester. Okay. And so uh, second trimester and then third trimester, you're just getting, uh, there's probably a lot less room in there with the fetus getting as big as it is. That's correct. And as far as one of the interesting things about monitoring the fetus during pregnancy when you're having a, an operation is that most, uh, most OBs will want to see pre and post fetal heart tones if it's the second, first or second trimester. And it really has to be uh, an interesting set of circumstances for the OBs to want to do intra uh, intraoperative fetal monitoring because if they're going to do intraoperative fetal monitoring, they're going to want to have to do something about it. Right. So rarely do you see the OBs wanting to stand by in the operating room as you're operating on on patients. And um, there was one interesting case I did about four or five months ago where a woman had a food bolus and she was 36 weeks pregnant. And we did that under general anesthesia in the obstetrical operating room with full field monitoring with the expectation that we would do a cesarean section if the baby did not respond well. And luckily for the woman, uh, it, went, it all went well. But that was an interesting case of of a time where the obstetricians wanted to, wanted a, a non-obstetric case to be done in the obstetric operating room, yeah. and they were ready to do a cesarean section. Interesting. And what, what, tell me, what do you mean a food bolus? I'm sorry. She so a food bolus. Food bolus. She had something caught in her throat. Got it. She tried to swallow a, a piece of food, and it just was not going to go. Okay. So it had to be removed under anesthesia. Yeah, and uh, luckily for her, by the time we got the the scope down, it already passed by itself. Okay. So. But there certainly was a real indication for her to go to the operating room. All right. So, so moving on to the, the renal system. Yeah. So the renal vascular volume and interstitial vascular volume are going to increase during pregnancy. So you're going to have an increased cardiac output, like we talked about before, by 50%. And the kidneys, is, kidneys are going to see every bit of that increase in cardiac output. The, the glomerular filtration rate and the renal plasma flow increase markedly in pregnancy. It's going to be about 50%, and that corresponds to the increase in cardiac output. The creatinine clearance is going to be increased to 150 to 200 milliliters a minute. The total protein excretion and urinary albumin excretion is going to be higher in pregnancy. And uh, there's going to be renal compensation for the respiratory alkalosis. Like we talked about before in the blood gases, you're going to want to create a lower PaCO2 so that you can offload the fetus's CO2 onto the maternal circulation. And so when the ventilation increases, lowering the PaCO2, the renal system is going to compensate by dumping bicarbonate. Okay. So uh, let's move on again to thyroid function. So sorry, Mike, I just want to back up. It's, I'm sorry. So the, I think a, a common thing that gets asked is, if you are shown a creatinine level 
for a pregnant woman and it is listed as quote unquote normal under the normal parameters, maybe it's 1.1, that's probably fairly abnormal because it should be significantly lower for a pregnant woman. Is that right? That's a great point. Yes, absolutely. So like we, like we just talked about, you're going to have an increase in glomerular filtration rate. And so your creatinine during pregnancy should be lower than normal okay, or lower than pre-pregnancy. Right. All right. All right. So moving on to the thyroid function, the thyroid gland is going to increase, is going to enlarge 50 to 70% during pregnancy. You have an increase in total T3 and T4 due to the estrogen-induced increases in globulins. But the free T3 and T4 concentrations do not change. And so you're not going to see a, thyrotox, a, thyro, a thyrotoxicosis or pregnancy like you would in hyperthyroidism. You're just going to have an increase in the total amount of thyroid uh, hormones, and that's due to the globulins mostly. Okay. Uh, moving on again to glucose metabolism, the mean glucose is going to remain the same. There is going to be an increase in glucose demand by the fetus because the fetus is a growing, uh, growing organism that needs glucose for fuel. And you're going to see people who pre-pregnancy don't have any problem with glucose metabolism, but they're going to have a problem during pregnancy. And Pregnant patients can have insulin resistance due to hormones secreted by the placenta, and lactogen is the hormone that's mostly responsible for this. Okay. And is this one of the reasons that some women will develop gestational diabetes? That's correct, yes. Okay. So moving on to another uh, endocrine uh, consequence is that for the adrenal cortical function, you're going to have a 100% increase in plasma cortisol after the first trimester, and you're going to have a 200% increase in plasma cortisol at term. And does that, that strikes me as, as uh, sig very significant increases. Is there any physiologic consequence of that? Well, I mean, I think it's, you're going to see the increase in mostly the, the biggest change is going to be the increase in blood volume. This increase in cortisol is going to result in increased fluid retention, which mm -hmm. is going to support the increase in cardiac output. Okay. That makes sense. So moving on yet again to another organ system, musculoskeletal. And so pregnant patients are famous for having back pain. And 19% of patients are going to have back pain in the first trimester that they wouldn't have had prior to pregnancy. And about 49% of pregnant patients are going to have back pain at term. These are people who didn't have back pain beforehand. Half of them are going to have back pain at term. Mm -hmm. And this is largely due to the relaxin, which is a hormone secreted during pregnancy. It alters the, the collagen fibers and the pelvic connective tissue. Now, this is very adaptive because it allows the pelvis to expand and expel a fetus from the, the pelvic outlet but it also has some unintended consequences of, of this back pain. Okay. And moving on yet again to the nervous system. And so a, a, a real good question that's often asked on board exams is, what happens to MAC during pregnancy? And so MAC is going to be 40% lower in pregnancy. And this is thought to be due to progesterone. 
you're also going to have elevated endorphins and enkephalins that are found in the plasma and CSF of parturients. And pregnant patients will require less local anesthetic to achieve an epidural or spinal level. And this is also thought to be due to the adiposity of the of the tissues surrounding the epidural and spinal spaces. The adiposity will put pressure mm-hmm. on the on the epidural space and the spinal space. Right. Um, now, uh, you, int- what? Sorry, Mike. I was going to ask. Uh, yes. So MAC uh, is decreased by forty percent. I would assume, but I actually don't know the answer, so I'm going to ask you, is there a corresponding decrease in the dose of propofol needed to achieve the same effect? We don't define that as MAC, but is it the same? Do you, do you need less propofol, too, if you were doing a TIVA, for example, or for induction? Um, I believe that that is, that is the case, but um, when I speak about MAC, that's mostly due to the, the mil-mil volatiles. Right. So. Okay. Uh, so pregnant patients at term are dependent on the sympathetic nervous system to maintain hemodynamics. So if you knock out the sympathetic nervous system with a spinal or epidural, you're going to see a precipitous drop in blood pressure, which is kind of what we see with our spinal placements and loading epidural catheters in the labor and delivery suite. Right. So anesthetic implications of pregnancy and physiology is that you want to avoid the supine position. And so the pregnant patient has this gravity uterus that's going to compress the inferior vena cava, which is going to decrease uh, venous return. Right. And, and so you want to avoid the supine position. It's unclear as to what level of left lateral decubitus position is optimal. Some studies have shown that it helps. Some studies have shown it doesn't help at all. That being said, I think the standard of care is that if you have a patient who is at term, that you don't have them lay completely flat in their back. Right. The other, another aesthetic implication of term is that the data from closed claim studies and quality data shows a tenfold increase in failed intubation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the caveat in that number is that that's based on data that is pre-video of the laryngoscopes. Okay. And so I, I, there's emerging data to show that airway management in pregnant patients is much, much, much safer with video laryngoscopy than it was without it. It's not been quantified to the extent of tenfold, fivefold, twofold, but um, there is an, an aesthetic implication of increased airway, uh, increased failed airways during um, intubation of pregnant patients. But uh, my personal opinion is I think that's overblown. It's a, this is a topic for another lecture Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think that people have been brought up to irrationally fear the parturient airway. I think that we don't put enough pregnant patients to sleep. And I think there's a lot of people who are suffering due to the, the fear of losing the airway. But, um, but there is, I can't, I can't say there isn't an increased risk of failed airway with pregnant patients. And it's due to the, the edema of the airway we talked about before. Right. And along those lines, 
you really want to consider the use of a smaller cuff due to airway engorgement. So if you're putting a 7.0 diameter tube in non-pregnant women, you might want to think of a 6 or a 6.5. Okay. And so I like to have, when I'm, when I'm setting up my anesthetic workstation for any kind of anesthetic for a pregnant patient, I like to have a 6, a 6.5, and a 7 tube available. Not necessarily open and stylated, but just available. Okay. And is that because you may not be able to pass a bigger tube or because you don't want to put pressure on the uh, airway? A little bit of both. There's some, there's some uh, select circumstances where you're not going to be able to pass the tube. And, um, and so uh, I think that I usually like to start off with a seven. If I can pass that easily, then I'll let that stay in just because of the ease of ventilation. But if I feel resistance when I'm passing the tube, I'll go down to a 6.5 or a 6.0. Okay, great. And, and um, obviously, the, the last anesthetic implication is that maternal patients are going to have less reserve, which is the functional residual capacity, and they're going to be subject to more rapid hypoxemia. So if you were to take someone who normal body habitus, pre-oxygenate them, flush out all the nitrogen in their lungs, they are probably going to be able to maintain their saturations for f- almost five minutes in an apnea situation. Now, for a pregnant patient who has decreased functional residual capacity and an increased metabolic demand for oxygen, both from the patient and the fetus, you're going to see that patient desaturate most often less than a minute. And so the stakes are a lot higher for airway management and apnea in a pregnant patient at term. Absolutely. That's really important. So I think I've run through all the, the organ systems, um, and I think these are the, the, the high-yield topics that uh, residents are going to see on their in-train exams and the actual board exam. I agree. I think this was incredibly high-yield, Mike. Uh, really went through the, each organ system really well, and, and you highlighted, I think, what are, are just frequently asked questions in a really uh, nice way. Thank you so much uh, for going through this with me. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, We'll have to come up with a topic and do another one. Absolutely. All right, that was a blast to have Mike on the show and to do this via Skype. I hope the audio comes out all right. If you have any comments, of course, you can go to the website, accrac.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave a comment. Tell us what you think about maternal physiology or whether you disagree with anything we've said, whether you have any comments for other people to learn. You can leave them right there on the website, and that way everyone can see them. Of course, you can also email me at acrac at acrac.com. If you're enjoying the show and you haven't done this yet, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating about the show. It really helps others find the show and get a chance to listen as well. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Mike Hofkamp, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Doctors take Field of Greens for their own health. Here's Dr. Ryan Green to explain. We're like you, too much fast food and not enough exercise. That's why I take Field of Greens. The fruits and vegetables in Field of Greens support my heart, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism for weight loss. And Field of Greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.